trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March, when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There has been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as the necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. As part of a special series, the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered is asking lawyers about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and my guest today is April Dawson, an associate dean and law professor at North Carolina Central University. Her academic work centers on constitutional law and voting rights, and she also chairs the webinar committee of the Association of American Law Schools section on technology, law, and legal education. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I feel like with your academic background and technology background, you're the perfect guest for us to have right now. Um, listeners, we're recording this on November 16th, and it is about a week after the election or so, and everything has come with it. And what I wanted to ask you first was, as someone whose academic work centers on voting rights law, what are some things that really have stood out for you during the past few weeks? Wow. Well, you know, a year ago when we were thinking about this election, there's no way we could have anticipated that so much would have changed. Having an election cycle in the midst of COVID has really changed how people think about voting. And, and I think that's a, a good thing. When we look at the numbers of people who have voted, the ways in which they have voted, the energy around voting, you know, I think that's that's certainly a positive. The more people that vote, the better. So just the circumstances of COVID and people not being able to go out in the way that they normally would, but then also just in terms of the way our country is currently existing and how that has galvanized people and caused people to uh, just pay more attention to the election. So as frustrating as the current circumstances are or can be, I do think this is a positive for our democracy. And, and my hope is that the energy and the enthusiasm about casting a ballot, playing a role in our governmental system will continue. And again, I just think that's better for our democracy. Do you feel like in the past few months, you've heard people who aren't in academia talking about voting rights more than ever before. Have you seen more mainstream newspaper articles about voting rights? It's just, it seems to be more of our day-to-day -day discussion than it ever has been. Yes, it, it has been. And and again, I think that's a great thing um, when, because what happens when you talk about it is people become more mindful of the problems that exist or the barriers that exist. And our democracy is only as strong as we encourage and allow people to vote. And so when you have barriers that will prevent people from exercising uh, their right, again, it, it hurts our democracy. So I think because this was such an important election, all elections are important, but this was this election seemed even more so because of the circumstances. You do have people having these conversations, you know, at the at the dinner table or via Zoom. So, you know, we may not be able to interact with our extended family as much as we had previously, at least not in person. But I think there are a lot of Zoom conversations that are going on. There are a lot of telephone conversations that are going on. And because this was such an important election cycle, 
it was discussed pretty frequently. And, and so the hope is that we will continue these discussions and not just during the general elections, but the off-year elections as well. Think about the local elections. I'm here in North Carolina and, and we still have some races that are undecided. So one of the most interesting races is the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. And at the time of this taping, I think the difference is maybe 35 votes. And so when people talk about your vote matters. This is a real example of how every single vote matters. With what we saw during the pandemic where people were afraid to go physically to the polls, and there was also concerns about mailing their ballots in and if it got lost. And I know there's ways you could track it, but do you think we might see in the next decade online voting, or is that still something that's considered way too dangerous to consider anytime soon? Well, I I certainly don't think we will see it within the next couple of of election cycles, but I certainly hope that we'll move to that point where it is safe and secure. Uh, There are still a lot of problems when we think about threats, uh, cyber threats, cybersecurity issues that we have. So it it certainly isn't safe now, uh, but that we might get to that point because if it it's easier for people to vote the more people will vote. So one of the things that we've seen is that in some jurisdictions, people can actually register online. So that's an advancement. People being able to you know, vote absentee, and even though that was something that was available pretty much in most jurisdictions, people actually exercising their right to vote in that way just makes it more of an option going forward. So I, I do think that, you know, we can't always accurately predict where we will be in the future. Technology is improving and increasing at a rapid pace. So, you know, 10 years from now, hopefully we'll be at a place where where we can have um, voting online. Hmm. And do you think there'd be a benefit, too, because the technology could count it right away and in theory, human error would be gone from the process? It would absolutely make it more efficient. Absolutely. You know, but again, it, I, I think it's one of those things where we as a, a society and there are certain professions, uh, the legal profession is certainly one of those professions that doesn't have a great deal of trust when it comes to technology. I so see. Yeah. There, there is something to be said about going to the polls, casting your vote and being able to see that little, you know, vote machine kind of tabulate what you've said or or the selections that you've made. So one of the things that will have to happen before we get to a point where we are voting online is that there's got to be that sense of, of security and trust. And anytime we have foreign nations who are interfering with our elections and they're using technology, that just erodes the trust. And so there's still a lot of work to be done. But I I would not be surprised if, um, you know, a a decade or two, we might actually see voting online um, and that people are are comfortable with it. Uh, They have the warranted trust in it. And we're able to be kind of more efficient when we're trying to decide the will of the people. Do you have a voting law class this term? I am not teaching voting rights this year because Uh. uh, I moved into an administrative position. So I am just teaching my constitutional law class, which has been a fascinating class uh, this semester, as you can imagine. Well, tell me about some of the fascinating moments. 
Well, oh, first I should say that constitutional laws is always very interesting because sure. you're always able to look at what's going on currently in, in our government and uh, look at things kind of real time. So there were a couple of things that, that were going on this semester. Um, so when we think about, well, one, elections, and we do talk about voting a little bit in constitutional law, even though that's not the main focus, but we read a lot of Supreme Court cases. In fact, virtually all of the cases that you read in constitutional law are cases that come from the Supreme Court. And we had, of course, the unfortunate passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We had the selection of Amy Coney Barrett by President Trump. We had the nomination process. We had the Senate judiciary hearings. We had the, you know, voting by the the Senate and all of the different ways in which we saw politics play a role in that. And so we were able to have those real-time discussions. So when we talk about in con law, the structure of government and the function of government and the role of the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, there was something that was going on every single day, every single week that resonated with what we were talking about and the specific cases we were talking about. So um, one of the things, you know, we do is we go through the entire Constitution. And when you think about the Appointments Clause, so that's Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, and we look at the role of the Senate, and we were able to contrast the Senate this term and the Senate when Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland, and just the the difference in how the Constitution doesn't explicitly talk about some of the decisions that are made, but that when it comes to the functioning of our government, the Constitution is silent when it comes to some things. And so we were able to talk about the difference between constitutional decisions and constitutional authority and talk about political accountability and political authority. So the Republican-controlled Senate making the decision to have judiciary hearings on President Trump's nominee, but not having it when President Obama nominated someone, we were able to flesh that out and look at the actual language of the Constitution and talk about why that is. And that's an important lesson for you know, anyone to to learn, but particularly law students who will be officers of the court and who will be people who will be making suggestions as far as policy, who will be kind of on the front lines when it comes to the running of our government oftentimes. So for them to see these real kind of historical issues being played out, yeah, it has just made for an incredibly fascinating semester. Are your classes online, in person, or a hybrid? Our classes at North Carolina Central Law School, they are online. And we did have some face-to-face assessments. So one of the things that I think all educators are concerned about when when you're talking about the online delivery of instruction is how do you most effectively assess students? And law school you know, it's we're just getting to the point where we're seeing some law schools being given permission by the American Bar Association to have an online program. The vast majority of law schools, though, don't. And the majority of us are online because the ABA provided us with an emergency variant because of COVID. And so, 
you know, there's concern, of course, about just the delivery of instruction. How do you conduct your class online in a way that allows the students to meaningfully engage in the material, engage with each other, engage with the professor? But then on top of that, there's the concern about how do you accurately assess? And when you give an online assessment, it's very difficult to have that be secured. So, you know, how can you have thorough, meaningful assessments that may be open book or, you know, open notes since you're not able to secure them? So we actually had, I would say, half of our semester, half of our semester first year classes had face-to-face assessments. So we brought our students into the building and at staggered times by section, had them spread out throughout the law school and in socially distant spaces with full safety protocols in place, and we were able to assess them in the building. So we did that for the first couple of months. Our final exams, though, will be, will be online. An open book, I'm guessing? And, and open book, yes. In fact, I my... See. Con Law students just took their second assessment. They had uh, their first assessment, which was face-to-face. They had their second uh, semester assessment. So that was online. It was open book. I told them because it was open book and they would have their notes, that it would be challenging in a way that maybe a face-to-face test would not be. And then they have their final exam in December. Okay. I'm curious... Are there times when you would rather be teaching in person like you always did before, and perhaps especially this semester, because there's been so many just historic things that happened this semester? Oh, without a doubt. I so much would prefer being in person. There's something about the energy of walking into the classroom and seeing all of your beautiful students' faces and engaging them and talking about, you know, the, the particular case or the particular topic or what's going on in, in, you know, the real world. So I teach at North Carolina Central University School of Law, which is a historically black college and university law school. And so, so many of our students, a large percentage of our students are African-American. We've got a large percentage of African-American women We have talked about the historic selection of Kamala Harris as the vice president-elect. And even though we're able to talk online, you, you just don't have that same energy. You're not able to see everyone's faces. You're not able to talk with them as you're walking to the classroom or walking back to your office and the students aren't able to interact in the same way. And so we're making do with the circumstances as as best we can. And I, I think we here at Central have done a good job of coming up with an approach and techniques for teaching effectively online. But But there's nothing like at least certainly having many opportunities to interact face-to-face. I see. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I am going to ask you about the online teaching experience and how you think your use of technology, which you've always used in the classroom, but how has it changed during the pandemic? We'll be right back. As your firm looks to end the year on strong financial footing, consider trying LawPay. A proven and trusted solution, LawPay offers a simple, secure way to accept client payments from anywhere. Because LawPay understands the unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, the solution was developed to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from third-party debiting. 
Visit lapay.com slash ABA to learn more. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you're listening to a special series of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, which looks at how lawyers are dealing with professional and personal changes brought by the coronavirus. Joining me today is April Dawson, an associate dean and a law professor at North Carolina Central University. Her academic work focuses on constitutional law and voting rights, and she's also a former computer programmer, so she has been involved in technology in the classroom for some time. How has your use of technology in the classroom changed during the pandemic? So I have found that I am trying out different types of technology. I know it can certainly be sometimes overwhelming for for the students, particularly if you have different professors trying different things. But in an effort to try and engage them, I wanted to explore other technological tools. One simple thing that I've done, which is really kind of low tech, but it's difficult to do. Well, maybe not difficult to do, but I think it it especially helps if you're thinking about communicating via Zoom, having that Zoom classroom. And so one of the things that I've done is I will start my class 15 minutes early and I will play music and I let my students send me suggestions. And uh, so I'll, I have this Constitutional Law 1 playlist and anytime a student sends me a suggestion, I will put it in there. After Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, I know she loved the opera. And so for one class, I played some of her favorite opera pieces. There was uh, during some of the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, just, you know, kind of dealing with the racial issues that this country has been dealing with with far too long. I did a playlist of, you know, revolutionary music playlists. Of course, I did a day of a couple of days of Hamilton. And so that's one way that I think Zoom really allows for a creative way to just try and build community. And so the students have really kind of appreciated that. I'm not sure I would have thought about doing that going into the classroom. So that's one thing that I've done. The other thing that I have really thoroughly enjoyed that I had not done in the past was to use this program called Flipgrid. And this is a program that is free for educators. I believe it's owned by Microsoft now, although it was developed by a university. And it allows students to record little video messages. And one of the things that I've always done in my constitutional law class is to assign supplemental materials. So there are some wonderful podcasts out there. You know, of course, this one is a is an example of a wonderful podcast. <laughs> um, and there's this, uh, you know, More Perfect is one of the podcasts that I mm-hmm. just absolutely love. And so I assign, yes, I assign different episodes for my students to listen to that correspond with the cases that we're talking about. Um, one of my my favorite episodes is uh, called The Gun Story, and that's about um, the Second Amendment. It talks about the history of it. It talks about D.C. Heller. It's one of the longer ones. It's a little bit longer oh, than yeah. an hour. That's gotten a lot of awards, too, I believe. That is, yes. That's when you listen to a couple of times because it's so good. Yes, absolutely. And so, and the majority of my students just, you know, haven't had time to listen to podcasts. And so when we, when we talk about the Second Amendment and the D.C. Heller case, I, I have always had them listen to that podcast. And what I've done in the past is when we meet for class after that assignment and after they've read the case, 
I'll let a couple of students kind of share their thoughts, but we never have enough time for the students to, to for all the students who want to share to be able to share. I'd love to do a full class of that, but I'm not able to. But with this program called Flipgrid, I had my students record a minute and a half of their reactions to the podcast. So a couple of things that this does. One, it it really forces them to to listen to it because they know they've got to do this recording. It is wonderful for me because it's one of my most favorite episodes to hear their thoughts about it. And across the board, you know, they're a little concerned that it's so long, but afterwards they are really glad that they listened to it. They recommend it to, you know, their friends and family. And it also allows the students who do not at this moment have the opportunity to interact the way that they normally would if we weren't in this global pandemic, for them to be able to share with their classmates and to learn about each other. And I tell them to record wherever you feel most comfortable, wear whatever you want to wear. That's, you know, of course, you know, um, appropriate. Uh, But, you know, they don't have to wear a suit. They can be out in their garden. They can be with their dog. They can, you know, and so it allows us to see a little bit inside of their world. And it helps, again, it helps us to build community, which is so incredibly challenging when you are uh, teaching online. What year are your con law students? So they are second year law students. Okay. Yes. So they kind of already know each other. Well, so for the first year, they're in, they're divided into three sections. So the students who are in the same section, yes, they they do know each other, but this is a class that's mixed. And so, mm. you know, what would normally happen during the second year is that the students stop being so kind of siloed within their sections. And so mm-hmm. getting a chance to interact and, and get to know, um, you know, folks from other sections, we're not able to do that quite as much. But you're right, there, there are many who do know each other, yes. But they can, so I'm assuming you post all the videos so the students can go through and look at them and see what their, other, see what their classmates are up to. Yes. And so, and this is a wonderful thing about the Flipgrid platform is it's secure. And so I created a class, the students sign into it, they can, you know, record theirs, they can, you know, edit it, delete it, do another one if they want. And yeah, everyone has an opportunity to view everyone else's. Do you use this Socratic method when you teach? I do. uh, Although I would say it's more of a modified Socratic method. And even when I was in the classroom, because I used, you know, quite a bit of technology, for example, I love the the poll question. So I use, you know, poll everywhere. Uh, I was an early adopter of the clickers way back when, and, you know, 2007, I had my students with, with clickers. Now students are able to use their phones and their computers, so they don't need an actual physical device, which is, which is better. But to be able to talk about a particular topic and then stop and have the class assess collectively, have them, you know, answer, you know, relatively simple questions, and then using that as an opportunity to explain. The, the responses that I appreciate the best are when I ask a question and maybe the class is divided 50-50. When that happens, I get so excited because what I will normally do, and this is actually something that is easier to do in Zoom than it was in the classroom, but in Zoom, when that happens, I will have my students break out into the breakout rooms. And so I'll just 
I'm able to do it with Zoom, do it randomly. And I have them discuss it amongst themselves for about, you know, five, 10 minutes, depending on the question. And then I bring them back and then we do the poll question again. And it's interesting to see how it changes you know, does it, you know, does it now seem like the majority of the class is selecting the right answer? Or, or is it now that the majority of the class is selecting the wrong answer? Or is it still kind of 50-50? And then being able to call on students and have them explain their answer choices before I reveal. So okay. I, I do use Socratic, but it's not quite as effective online because you can't, even if the students have their cameras on and I do require them to, although I do tell them if you feel uncomfortable having your camera on for any reason at all, just, you know, shoot me an email or a private chat and just let me know. And, you know, because I want people to feel comfortable being able to be in class without having to deal with having their personal environment or space, you know, feel like that's being encroached upon. Do you have any class rules? I've been seeing that some professors don't want their students to eat in class or they can't come in their pajamas or, you know, just things like a kind of a controlling thing. Do you have any, um, you know, no no cats on the screen. Do you have any rules about that? (laughs) So I I have just asked that they uh, dress appropriately and have their cameras on if, if, if they feel comfortable or if they don't feel comfortable to just let me know. And, and that's pretty much it. I mean, because this is the thing we're all trying to deal with a lot and, and school is just part of it. And we don't know people's living situations. We don't know the other aspects of this COVID reality that they have to address. I mean, law school is stressful as it is. And then you add COVID on top of it. And then you add online learning on top of it. And then you add having to study in your you know, home with, with other people. And then you have economic issues that folks are dealing with. Maybe family members are out of work. I mean, so to add then another layer of anxiety because we don't want to see a cat. I mean, if, if knowing that, you know, if, if, if a student has a cat and knowing that the cat is around is going to help them calm down and be less anxious and not have to worry about, oh my gosh, my cat went across my desk and my professor is going to get upset. If, in my view, that's, you know, kind of wasted energy. So I, I want them to be there in a way that they can be engaged and I'm not trying to add any additional stressors to their lives. And I'm curious, are you also hearing from your students considering everything that's been going on in the country and certainly over the summer to be a young black student at an HBCU for law school now? Is it really seen as a safe space compared to other places? You know, because we're hearing about some of the conversations at law schools and things that come up and things that are really, you know, pretty discomforting to people that get said in class. I think it is a safe, a safe space. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult with COVID because we're not able to be physically present. Mm. And there's something about being around people who look like you physically in that space. I remember when I went to college, I went to Bennett College, which is an 
all-women's college, African-American college in HBCU in Greensboro, North mm-hmm. Carolina. I grew up in Southern California and went to a predominantly white high school. All my, you know, early education was, you know, at a predominantly white at schools. And I was often one of only, you know. And I remember how comforting it was and but also very strange being at an HBCU and everywhere I looked, there was someone who looked like me and my my race didn't play any role at all in how I was perceived or how I was treated or how I was assessed. My gender played no role in how I was perceived, assessed mm-hmm. or treated. And I remember that so viscerally now because it was so stark. Yeah. And and so there's something about being surrounded by, you know, your people, if you will, especially when you're talking about law school, especially when you're talking about during a time where the country seems to be so divided when it comes to race and when it comes to racial issues. And, and so the reason why, you know... It is a safe space, but not as safe as it would be if we weren't in the COVID environment. Um, I see. But that being said, one of the things I, I've done with my con law classes, if something significant has happened, I will take the first you know, 20 minutes or so of class just to allow time and space for my students to share or not share. So when the grand jury in the Brianna Taylor case came back and there were no charges against the officers. That hit a lot of us really hard. And so that class, I just took some time. I shared a few thoughts that I had and I opened it up and I let the students share their thoughts. And so it wasn't you know, it wasn't the whole class period, but it was about it was about a good 20 minutes. And then I think I lectured for the rest of the class. But some students told me afterwards that they just really appreciated having time and space to be able to process in a safe space. And and we did that a couple of times in this semester. We did it uh, after the race was called, the presidential election was called. We did it after the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. And so we're doing our best to try and make it as safe as possible, given these circumstances. I see. And I think a lot of times, too, women professors in law schools are often sought for advice for a variety of things, not just academic, but oftentimes you are the person people go to when they're having problems. How how do you manage that during the pandemic? Because you can't see students face to face. You can just talk, try to talk to them on the phone, I guess, or on email. Yeah, well, if a student reaches out and the student seems to be in distress, I will very quickly say, let's let's get on the phone and let's talk because there's so much that's lost in translation when you're trying to communicate via email. And, and that's worked out well. And I think for them, sometimes just hearing a voice of someone who has concern for their, for their issue, their, a problem that they're wrestling with. So that's something I'm, I'm quick to do if I feel it's appropriate. The other thing, we're really fortunate here at Central, we actually have a wellness director who is um, a licensed therapist. And 
I'm not trained. <laughs> so right. I, you know, it's like I'm, and I, what typically happens is, you know, I'm, I'm a mother of four. And so when a, when a student and I see them all kind of, I feel very maternal towards them when a student is struggling or in distress in some ways, I kind of assume that mom persona just because that's what I know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when it comes to certain issues, you really do want to have a trained professional who understands yeah. um, in a in a deeper way than I do some of these these issues that that these young people um, and some not so young people are dealing with. And so it's comforting to know that I can and I and I have often referred students to our wellness director and, and he's wonderful. And then the university, we've stayed in contact with their counseling office. And, uh, and you know, when we're talking about counseling and mental health, one of the things that I think it's important that we do here and that all law schools and, and lawyers and law professors do, particularly for law students and young lawyers, is we have to destigmatize mental health and the need for treatment, right? Because when we yeah. look at... The legal community lawyers are more prone to suffer from alcoholism and drug abuse than the greater population. When we look at the African-American community, sometimes there's a stigma attached to mental health and receiving help from a mental health professional. And we really want to make sure that law students understand that it's okay to seek help. And it's imperative that if you need help, that you do seek help because you're about to enter into a profession that is incredibly challenging, stress-inducing. And if you don't know how to navigate really challenging circumstances and anxiety and stress, then what we tend to do as a group is to self-medicate. And we we don't want that. And so we feel really good about the fact that we encourage our students to seek mental health counseling and support whenever they need it. That's great. Now, you mentioned your children. Your children are all young adults, right? They are. They are. In fact, did they come home or are they still out living their lives? <laughs> no. So they are three of the four are home. My oldest, who is is not home right now, he actually graduated from law school in the spring. So I was experienced. I met him at Tech Show. Yes, he's That's a lovely right. young man. Yes, yes, yes. He's he's great. He's great. So I was kind of living this law school COVID reality as you know a professor <laughs> and also as a mom of someone who was graduating. Now, where does he go to school? So where he did just he go to school. He just graduated from Penn, uh-huh. uh, University of Pennsylvania, and he had his virtual graduation. And so we you know went on that. He uh, had the drama of the bar exam try you know he needed to take you that in person or online it was so it was online it was new york Uh, and you know new york mm. kept going back and forth so one it was going to be on this particular date and then they had you know changed it and they weren't letting all of the young people who were planning on taking the bar sit for the bar and so it was a lot of drama for him but he he took it he has not received his results back and so he is actually hanging out in Colombia learning Spanish. Well, he already knows Spanish, but he's trying to, you know, uh, shore up his Spanish. And he will be starting at the firm in January. Oh, nice. Yeah. And my my oldest daughter, she was actually 
with the Peace Corps. She was in Mongolia. And mm. because of COVID, they had to evacuate all the Peace Corps volunteers. So she Aww. was only there for... Uh, she was only there for about maybe seven months. And so that was, that was difficult to to come back. She loved the country. And so she's thinking about grad school. And then I had two who were in college. So one finished up his freshman year last year and the other finished up her sophomore year. And they both decided that they want to sit out at least this year. And so, Ah. yeah, three of my um, three of my four are are at home and I was, you know, rocking the empty nest there all last year. (laughs) And, you know, it's full again, but it's 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 good having them back. I would think so. Yeah. What are things um, you miss the most about life before the pandemic, not just with your work, but just with anything? So one of the things oh, I miss so much is um, I was really getting into yoga in a serious, mm. serious way. So I've always been, you know, kind of like a casual practitioner, but I had found a studio that I really just loved and I was going pretty regularly. I was also doing a lot of salsa dancing, you know, and and both of mm-hmm. these are activities that are incredibly difficult to do during COVID. Uh, and yeah. so those are those you can are, rope in one of your kids for the salsa dancing. Right. Well, I've look, I've 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 uh, you know, commandeered my youngest and he knows a couple of moves to because he helped me out. But yeah, so you know, I love being a, a lawyer, a law professor, um, even now as an, an administrator. But we do have to, and I tell my students this and my children this all the time, you've got to find other things that you enjoy doing outside of the the practice mm-hmm. of law or the, the mm-hmm. you know, education of law. And so physical, those types of physical activities were things that I really loved and gravitated to. So I would say that's those are two things that I really, really miss. Are there things you don't miss, though, about life before the pandemic? And that I think for all of us, things have kind of slowed down, even if we're working a lot and there's just not as much going out and all. I mean, that can be good, but also mm-hmm. there's not like the pressure to go and do things, perhaps, that mm-hmm. you maybe didn't really want to, but you felt like you needed to. Hmm. You know what I think has actually been a benefit? is the conferences. Like I, I love to travel and I love going to conferences. Mm-hmm. And But one of the things that particularly I'm acutely aware of being at an HBCU is that not everyone has the resources to go to some of these wonderful conferences. And a perfect, yeah. perfect case in point is the tech show. Yeah. In terms of the organizers, I think it's so much easier to get a really wide range range of speakers that you couldn't really get before because the schedule didn't mess. But now you just have to sit at your desk. Exactly. For and better is, or worse. And and the tech show is not cheap, right? I mean, it's not right. it's not cheap. It's it's you know, and I don't think there's a discount for new lawyers. And so yeah, once, <laughs> so once you're a lawyer and you look at the, and I can't quote, I can't think of the price now, but I remember looking at it going, this is really cost prohibitive for a lot of mm-hmm. young lawyers who have to not only pay the registration fee, but then they also have to pay the airline fee and they have to pay the hotel fee and they have to pay for food. And, and yeah. if they're at a firm that can't afford that. And, and I love the tech show. I, it just completely changed my outlook and uh, I became so much more optimistic about the legal profession and the use of tech Mm. when I went to my first tech show in 2019. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, I know so many people who would benefit from the information and the knowledge that is shared. Well, and and this is not just the case for the tech show. There's so many wonderful conferences that folks can't get to because they don't have yeah. the resources. Like and the ALS conference exactly, is online this year. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so you can imagine how many more people are going to be able to consume such wonderful information. So that's actually one thing about COVID I, I really do appreciate is that the knowledge, the information that's out there that has been not available to people, not because they're not eager to have it, but because they don't have the resources, some of those barriers have have um, fallen away. So that's a great thing, I think. Got it. And that's everything I had to ask you today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, absolutely. This was great. I appreciate you inviting me. Yes. And listeners, thank you for joining us too. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.